All right, if you'll find chapter 16, if you haven't found it already, chapter 16 of the Confession. Um, and again, I've put a few, I'm going to put a few things up on the PowerPoint this morning just so we have um, an idea of what we're doing today as far as looking at this new chapter. So chapter 16 deals with the subject of good works. And of course, as we think about good works, uh, many times our minds will begin to uh, run to what we believe are good works, how we define good works. Uh, But I would also just remind us that we're not so concerned today about what we think good works are, but what does the Bible say about good works? Um, How are good works uh, defined? Uh, Paragraph 1 of chapter 16 reads this way. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. So we see that these good works, notice uses the word only. That word is important because the word only tells us that there is a single-mindedness that the confession writers were writing about with regard to good works. Uh, Good works, uh, this is an important chapter because almost every religion in the world uh, is based upon people doing good works to get into heaven. Uh, Almost universally, uh, every religion of the world Uh, primarily emphasizes good works getting us qualified or actually getting us into heaven. So this is not a small matter. Now, none of the confession chapters are small matters, but good works is something that has tripped uh, even believers up for a number of years. Uh, there There are so many things that are dealt with in this, such as you see that it's only such as God has commanded in his holy word and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal. Uh, to be zealous of good works is often misinterpreted to mean that all my good works are acceptable before God as long as I'm zealous about them. But you'll notice that the confession writers talk about blind zeal. Uh, To be blind to your zealousness or have blind zeal means to do it in a manner or a fashion that is not what is required or what has been spelled out. Now, in Micah chapter 6, the reason that we read that is you see, first of all, that it is the footnote that institutes or uh, indicates the first statement. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word. So that references Micah 6, 8, and also Hebrews 13, 21. So what was going on in Micah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8 is that uh, Micah was really calling God's people to stand before God and to give an account of their own worship. Or we might put it this way, uh, give an account of your religion. And what the people of Israel had become guilty of is they had been guilty of this very thing. Uh, They had become enamored with their good works, which is why Micah was making statements about the Lord has a controversy with you. He's pleading with Israel in verse number two, it says, and he says, oh my people, what have I done unto thee? Now God never does wrong to his people. God is always right. He's always just, he's always perfect. But yet, God says through Micah, the prophet, I have a controversy with you. 
And he spells out the controversy, and he says, what have I done to weary you? Now, let me just say this as a side note. The service and the good works of God are not wearisome. They're not wearisome. I have watched over the years people absolutely burn themselves out trying to do as many good works as they can possibly squeeze into a 24-hour day, and they were doing it primarily out of blind zeal. They were doing it primarily because they believed that the more I do, the more God is going to be pleased with me, the more sacrifices, the more offerings I give him, the more pleased he's going to be with me. You should not get burned out in the service of the Lord. And honestly, that also includes pastors and elders. I I watch and watch pastors burn themselves out doing things that are nothing more than blind zeal. Now, do pastors and elders, deacons and uh, church offices, and we all have responsibilities? Absolutely. But blind zeal is when just what Israel was doing, they began to substitute what God really required for what they thought God will just accept because we're doing it out of zeal for God. Now, remember, it was zeal that led the Lord to overturn the money changers' tables. Uh, That was zeal. Um, If you went into a place now where someone was making the house of God a merchandise and you turned over the tables, I don't think anybody would say you're zealous of good works. They would say you're a mean, angry person. But the Bible says that he did that out of zeal. So it's this blind zeal, or that second part, pretense of good intentions. Good intentions do not equal what God requires. So that's what is happening here in this text. So notice what he says. God reminds them of what he's done for them in verse number four. He says, I've brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed thee out of the house of servants. I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God said, I took you out of Egypt. I brought everything to you that you needed. Uh, You were not wanting in anything. He tells them to remember what other kings had done, what other people had done to them. And verse 6, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves of a year old? Now notice the questions being asked here. What should I bring to God that will be pleasing to him? Is it burnt offerings, these one-year-old calves? Or verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Now, these are... Quite sacrifice. These are quite sacrificial. He he is he is saying I have a controversy with the questions that you're asking. That you're concerned about. Am I going to be pleased with burnt offerings and thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These are these are in fact deep cases. What the Lord is doing is he's presenting uh, as his controversy. He's giving all the points as to why he has an issue. He says, based upon all of my aspects and all of my illustrations and evidence of delivering you, all of these things, I want you to think about what you're trying to do now. You see, what Israel was guilty of is they were trying to assert that as long as we do things with all of our intention, and as long as we think what is a good work is a good work, then God has to be pleased with what I offer. So they offered the very best. 
They offered the best animals. They offered the best sacrifices. They offered the best they could do. And instead of listening to what the Lord was saying, they defended themselves. Again, as a side note, um, I would always find myself defending uh, why I was burning myself out. Uh, I was the proverbial, I am burning both. I am burning the candle at both ends, and I'm also burning it in the middle. I, I, I burned myself out. I became so weary, and I realized that most of those things was nothing more than blind zeal and pretense. That the more I did, the more God would be impressed with me. The more I did, the more God would have to say, you know what, you are coming with so many good works, so many things, and yet notice what Micah is telling them. They brought their very best. They brought everything. Instead of listening to what God was saying, they just simply said, but God, aren't you impressed with what we've done? Aren't you impressed with all the good works? There was a time in my life when I really thought I was impressing God with my works. I really thought God must really be impressed because I am burning myself out. And it became also kind of a martyrdom syndrome that said, you know what? This is the way you're supposed to serve God. You're supposed to serve God by just doing, 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 doing. You know what I falsely believed? I believed that falsely that my good works were gaining points with God. This is what leads us to that verse in verse 8 where God says, your defense of your reasons of pretense of blind zeal He gives them a very profound statement, and verse 8 of Micah 6 actually defines what good works are. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee. Now, folks, isn't that what we want to know today, what the Lord requires, or do you want to know what man requires? I'm not interested in a spiritual perspective of anything of what God requires. I'm not interested in it. Spiritually speaking, what, God, what man requires of me is of no value unless it's what God requires. Okay, and I think, I hope I'm making that very, very clear today. There's a big difference. I bought into what man required and assumed that's what God had said. You know why I did that? Because I never had gotten the scriptures for myself. I found out my entire life was what somebody else told me to believe and I never could defend why I believe what I believe. I pastored a church based upon what somebody else told me to believe. And it wasn't until I said, no, 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 I've got to figure this out. What does God require of me? What does God require? And that's what God is doing with the nation of Israel. He says, what doth the God require of thee with regard to what is good? Here it is. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. You know what happens when you become blind have blind zealousness for your good works, the opposite happens of being humble. You become pride-filled. And you begin to say, look at all that I'm doing. You begin to compare yourself to what other people were doing. And you say, look at my good works compared to your good works. I, am, I, have, I have overshadowed you by miles. How many of us did a lot of good works and forgot what it was to really love the mercy of God? Folks, if you haven't meditated on the mercy of God recently, let me encourage you to do that. Meditate on the mercy of God. And what about doing justly? How many people are doing all these good works, but they're not even dealing justly with their neighbor? They're not dealing justly with their spouse. They're not dealing justly with their children, their co-workers, their friends. Do you see what happens? You become blind zealots. 
who are running around all over the church, ministry, 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 and you're not even doing the other things. We had a whole ministry based upon signups to do something else. People would take the sign-up sheet and sign up for 10 different ministries. Folks, what, what are we doing? We're encouraging people by saying all of these things, if we're not careful, these are somehow gaining you points with God, either getting you saved or keeping you saved, and both premises are wrong. My good works are not intended to be things that gain me points with God or save me. So we see here what's happening, that we see these good works. Now, there is a passage over in Hebrews. Let's look at that one before we move off of this. Hebrews 13, verse 21. Now, this this appears in a section that deals with uh, the obedience to rulers and the obedience to those who are over us. Uh, Hebrews 13 uh, in verse uh, number, uh, let's, let's look at verse 20. It says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Who or what makes us perfect in good work? It's connected to verse 20. The writer of Hebrews says, It is through the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, makes you perfect in every good work. These good works are not what man defines. Good works are not what man devises. Good works are rather what God says they are supposed to be. So we see they're only such as God has commanded in his holy word. So what is a good work? Only what God has commanded. Anything else that I attempt to label as a good work outside of what the scripture requires and says of me is man-made. Folks, I don't mean any disrespect to anybody who's, who, who would hear this. But a lot of our church ministry and a lot of what we're doing in churches is man-made zealousness that is wearying people to the point that they don't know what to do. They feel guilty if they're not involved in everything that the church is doing. They're made to believe that if you're not this, 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 and this, then you must not really be a Christian. I understand what this is because I preach that way. I taught that way. To where it was, I need to make you feel as guilty as you can to guilt you into doing something good so we can advance the kingdom of God. Because if you just preach, what does God require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly? It's not really a motivating speech to rally the troops, is it? Not in man's perspective, it isn't. But yet that's what God requires. So we see that there is this idea of what's happening here. So as we've already witnessed back in chapter number 11 of the confession, believers are justified by God's grace through Christ and not by good works. So we need to ask ourselves the question this morning, what is the role of good works in the life of a believer? And we also need to know, are good works unnecessary or are they optional? And how do we count the good works of unbelievers? What if an unbeliever does a good work? How does God count it? 
Does God look at that and say that's a good work or because they're an unbeliever, it's not counted for anything? You see, that's the questions we have to ask ourselves. So what is this good work? Now we're going to deal with the, the second verses here in just a little bit. But notice again what we're talking about here is to be able to identify what good works are. All right, so here's a summary of what paragraph one's teaching us. It teaches us that God has described in the scripture the types of good works that are required by him. That's what we want to know. I want to know what has God described or declared in the scripture that is a type of good work. The second half of that, believers are not free nor required to define or devise their own good works no matter how good their intentions are. The good got cut off there, but that's good. Intentions is not what God requires. As a matter of fact, God's not even considering your intention when it comes to good works that God requires. What in fact is he doing is the reality of these good works are only what God has commanded in his word. So we've got to identify, first of all, what did the confession writers, as they looked at the scriptures, how did they come to the conclusion that these are what good works are? So that's really the question that we're asking ourselves today. So to explain this paragraph, this is a teaching of the scripture and it's stated both positively and negatively. So we have two, we have two sides of this coin. Okay, positively, defining a good work is by only what God requires. Okay, negatively, not what men think are good works. Okay, so we can see it's, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. In a positive aspect, I only do what God requires. Now, I, only is kind of a scary word there. Because when I say only, you think, oh, all I have to do is what God requires. It's kind of like the person that tells another individual, don't judge me, only God can judge me. That's the most ignorant statement you can make. You would, I'd much rather be judged by, my works be judged by a mere man than God as far as what, what God could do with a judgment of me. But you understand only here doesn't mean that this negates it or lessens it, but rather we take the positive view that good works are defined by only what God requires. And again, secondly, not what men think are good works. So this cuts to the heart of man-made religion which does two things. It rejects God's way, and it follows its own way. Okay, all man-made religion does those two things. If your faith or your religion is based upon good works, getting you saved or keeping you saved, you have rejected God's way, and you're following your own way. That's what the confession writers had in mind. That's as, simplifi that's as simplified of what this paragraph means as we could possibly make it. Positive, negative. What God requires, it's not what men think it is. So that helps us with this today. So we also will see, when we get to chapter 22, we'll actually see that all true religious worship that is acceptable to God is regulated by the word of God. How do I know what God accepts as a good work? It's part of our heritage. It is part of our background is what we call ourselves as Reformed Baptists. Reformed Baptists are also known by being regulated by the Word of God. Being regulated by the Word of God means that that falls into every structure of what we do. 
We find the Word of God and we say, what does the Word of God say about church structure? What does the Word of God say about preaching? What's the Word of God say about singing? What's it say about the exposition of Scripture? But we also get what good works are from that. My good works are only based upon what God requires. Okay? So this means that true Christianity is a Christ-revealed or Christ-centered religion. It's not man-made. In other words, believers are never, ever free to choose what they want to give before God as a requirement, or we also are never required to worship God in a way that he has not told us to. Now, worship is a funny thing, and I don't mean that humorously, because man in our churches has tried to redefine worship over the last 20 years, and it has become frightening what man calls worship. And we say, well, I'm zealous. I'm singing songs about Jesus. I'm singing songs about God. Certainly, he's accepted this. Does the Bible say he accepts it? Remember, the controversy God had with the people through Micah was this. You're offering to bring me thousands of things. You're bringing the very best of, of this, and you're bringing all of that. But my command to you is, is to do justly, to walk humbly, to think on mercy. <laughs> Folks, I, I wish I, wish I would have, I wish I would have knew that, known this 15 years ago. You know what half my week was? trying to figure out how to worship God. I'm not kidding you. How to worship God and how to find creative ways to get people motivated to worship God. You know what that does? It takes you away from the most important aspect of the pastor elder, which ought to be given over to the word of God in preaching and teaching and prayer. I felt guilty that I wasn't spending enough time on trying to motivate people and get you excited about the things of God. I'd go home in a miserable, miserable mood if people just weren't responding right. Why is nobody volunteering? Why is nobody signing up? Why is nobody interested? Apathy used to lead into the pulpit the next week where I'd preach a message on the, what happened the fight last week because people just won't do anything. And then, by the grace of God, he starts opening up your eyes and you start seeing the reality of what God actually requires. And I'm telling you, the burden comes off of your shoulders, the weight comes off of your back, and you say, you know what? God, this is not about me motivating you. I'm not your motivational speaker. I'm just going to give the word of God and man has to respond appropriately. But we as a church, we have to be able to say, what does God require of us? We should limit ourselves to worship God by only worshiping the way he requires, by what he's revealed. Now, we know that good works are a part of worship, so they should be regulated by the word of God. So again, this paragraph is teaching us that God has described in the Bible the types of good works that are required by him, and we are not free, right? We saw that in the slide before. We're not free or required to devise our own good works, no matter how good our intentions are. That's the teaching of Scripture, positive and negative. Positive, Micah 6.8, very clear. God told his people straight up, here's what I require of you. You don't have to invent good works. <laughs> I, maybe that doesn't relieve you as much as it does me. 
The story I didn't tell you is I spent, before I was a pastor, I was a youth pastor. Talk about inventing and making stuff up. Oh my word, my whole life was making stuff up. I spent more time trying to figure out a fun activity to attract teenagers more than pizza and trying to figure out how do I make this fun and exciting? What a travesty. Folks, there are things in my past with the ministry I am ashamed of. I was like, what in the world were you thinking? Dangling carrots out in front of kids, making them do things and check boxes and say, now here we've done something good. And the kid has no idea why they're doing what they're doing. They just know there was a reward at the end of the checkbox. It got real scary when our churches are now doing that with people. Now adults have to be coerced out of their dens at home and say, would you please come to church? We'll give you a free gift if you just show up. Folks, those of you who have been here since we got here, it has been incredible to watch what God has done in this place. To where we, we kind of just stripped everything away and said, you know what, we're going to start with the Bible and that's where we're going to park. We're just going to stay there. And people started showing up. People started coming and thinking, look, that's just, we're just doing what God requires of us. We didn't make you sign a commitment card when you walked in the door about all the ministries you're going to get involved in. We didn't even send you a flyer that says, what ministries are you interested in? But we are interested, I am interested in you walking humbly and doing justly. And be merciful. I'm telling you, it just, it lifts so many burdens when you realize God has said, here's what, we were, here's what we're supposed to do. 2 Timothy 3.16 indicates that the scriptures, I'm paraphrasing this, are able to equip believers for every good work. That means the scripture is sufficient. I have a whole office. I hope you're not interested. I have a whole office thing of how to invent good works for your church. I have two or three bookshelves. I have two or three shelves full of things of how to invent good works. Now, they're not titled that. It's not labeled on my shelf as how to invent good works, but that's what they are. They're every self-help church ministry book you can think of. I ate them up, ate them like candy. Oh, a new, a new book, a new book, how to invent ministry, how to reinvent your ministry, how to move your ministry forward, how to do this. <laughs> it did nothing. The scriptures are where we get and where we are equipped. So if there are good works that God requires of his believers, but they're not revealed in the Bible, then the scriptures would not be sufficient. So in other words, if there's a secret good work out there, then, the, then we couldn't say the scriptures are sufficient. God has not hidden good works. And something new with Christianity comes out seemingly every week. Here's what your church needs. Here's what you need. Here's exactly, you want to revolutionize and change your church? Here's what you do. It's never about make the scriptures and Jesus Christ your sufficiency. It's always about inventing a good work with blind zeal and a pretense that God is going to accept it. It's, it's almost 100% accurate when I say that. You know, believers and churches are afraid to just stand on the word of God alone. They truly are. 
And I've said this, maybe this isn't the appropriate place to say it. I've said this before, but churches have got themselves in such a deep mess that they're relying on so many people to withhold and hold up every ministry they're trying to pay for that they're compromising in order to just stay there. You know, when this church had its greatest moment is when we stood in the, we sat in this room one day and we said, you know what, we might have to think about closing. We may not be able to stay. And from that moment, God has done an absolute amazing thing in this place. And those of you that were here know exactly what I'm talking about because you're sitting there saying, um, I, weren't we talking to realtors at one point just about getting, leaving this building? Maybe we're not going to close as a church, but we're going to leave because we, we're down to nothing. And it's nothing that we did, folks. It's nothing that we did other than we kept standing on the word of God and said, we're not going to move even though it's not going to make some people happy and it might drive some people away. It might even lead to some intentional opposition, but we're just going to keep moving forward with the scriptures. Why? Because that's what God requires. And that's all he requires. And I don't say all lightly. The Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, what did he tell them in Matthew 28, 20? He told them, teach believers everything he commanded them to do. If Jesus did not command it, then he didn't require it. If the Bible doesn't command it, then stop requiring man-made inventions. So, negatively, the scriptures do warn about false worship. Matthew 15, 9 gives us one of those warnings. These are the last two indicator, or the uh, footnotes there. Uh, Matthew 15, 9 gives us some insight as to what's being said here. Uh, of course, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and he's dealing with what true defilement is. And he's also talking about genuine faith. Uh, there are some miracles within this that he does uh, command, or he does rather. But Matthew 15, 9, he says this. Oh, let's go to verse 8. He said, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Wow. He said, so part of the evidence of this, the people that draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with what they say, their heart is actually far from me, and everything they do, their worship is in vain. And not only is their worship in vain, but what they're doing is they're teaching the they're teaching the commandments of men as doctrine. I heard some pretty bad messages on that were commandments of men that that man pounded the pulpit so hard you would have thought that must have come right from the mouth of God. And yet when you got home and you looked in your Bible, you said, I don't see where God's commanding this. And they would say, well, no, you're just, you just don't want to, you're just being a rebel. So... I'm just asking the question, if God doesn't command it, can God require it? God doesn't require a single man-made invention. No matter how zealous you are, no matter how good-intentioned you are. Let's look at Isaiah 29. That's the other footnoted reference. Isaiah 29. I, I hope having some of this on the, on the PowerPoint, I'm not, I am very bad at trying to teach this way. I, I hate PowerPoint, but I thought today it might be helpful just to put these things out before us. And I'll maybe do it again, maybe I won't. You know me, 
I'll maybe up there by next week. I don't know. So Isaiah 29 tells us in verse 13 through 16, wherefore, now this is what Matthew 15, 9 was quoting. Wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord and their works are in the dark. And they say, who seeth us and who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding. Now, I don't have time to park there today, but there's, there's a lot in those, those verses you can meditate on all week long. The whole point of what God is doing here to Israel, what God is reminding them of, and how he's teaching them that he's going to do a marvelous work, verse 14 says. You know what they were guilty of? They were relying on their own intentions and their own wisdom to say, this is what God will be impressed with. And therein we know the problem. So by definition, anything not in the scripture is man-made. Believers are also warned not to be the slaves of men. First, uh, 1 Corinthians 7.23, Paul indicates, don't be the slave of men. And also, don't be a follower of man-made rules regarding religious worship. Paul wrote about that in Colossians chapter 2. We'll turn there quickly, and then we'll wrap this up, so we'll have some time for some questions if there are any today. But uh, Colossians 2, verses, look at verse 8, and then we'll drop down to verse 16. I have at the top of my Bible, at the top of chapter 2, this is just something, a habit I started years ago, I wrote statements that, kind of stand out for what that chapter was about. And I have, I remember the day I wrote this, it says glorying in the sufficiency of Christ at the top of chapter two. That's what I wrote in my Bible, glorying in the sufficiency of Christ. And look at verse eight, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Beware, be on alert. Don't let men spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Folks, I'm sad to say a lot of church has become philosophy and deceit and vanity. How we look, we want people to look at us and think favorably upon us. We want people to be, have every creature comfort they need. Folks, you go, go into international and go look at what those churches are meeting in. Shame on us for wasting our time and resources on trying to make church comfortable like you're at home in the easy chair. When there are people who are sitting in a foot of water at their feet with no roof and they're sitting on concrete blocks and they're sitting on pieces of wood and we say, look at our marvelous buildings. Look, if two years ago, however long it's been, if God would have taken this building from us then it would have been God's plan to take it from us and we would have kept meeting somewhere. We have never nor will ever be connected to this building as to say that's where our church, that's what our church is. This is just a building. It's just a building. 
But Paul was particularly concerned about what was going on there. Drop down to verse 16. He says in in Colossians 2, he says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary, I have this circled, in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandment and doctrines of men, question mark, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will, worship, and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh." I don't think I even need to make a commentary on that one. Just let that sink in for a minute, what Paul was telling the church at Colossae. He was telling them something that really should be all that they do. So the confession does not attempt, and this is what we're going to see in this chapter, that the confession does not attempt to define good works because to do so would be unfruitful. Not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus say? Okay, now are there some examples of it, of what good works are? Yes, but be careful in trying to define it. How do I define something? All right, so that's kind of where we are today. So it's also important to note that every church or denomination or religion that's based on a system of man-made works uh, is, are rejected by God. So if God has not said it, if God has not commanded it, then that is something that we need to take heart and look to that. So that gives us a good introduction to this chapter. Next week, we are going to dig a little bit deeper, and we'll figure out by the paragraph two deals with the role of good works, or what role do those good works play in our life, all right? So those are the three questions, all right? So first of all, let's, let's in the couple minutes that we have, Let's deal with these. Number one, what constitutes a good work in the sight of God? Hopefully we have a pretty good understanding of what that is. Number two, what is the role of good works in the life of a believer? Now that's kind of a preview for next week. And then thirdly, are good works unnecessary or optional? Anybody want to tackle any of those questions? Anybody have a thought on those or... You don't have to answer it per se, but something that generates a thought because of those questions. Anybody? Okay. Number three is not obvious no. Okay. Why is it an obvious no? <laughs> That's what we're supposed to do. That's how we show our faith. Okay, so, so, so the good works. That's it's not a group, but it is the fruit. Right. So it's. Hey, that's pretty good. Did you, did we did we talk before this? No. Okay. So just so we know, we didn't talk. Good works are not the root of faith, but they are. It's for, oh. Dan and I did not talk. <laughs> did you read that this morning? All right. 
That's just the way God works, right? And that's, and then you would choose number three, actually. Isn't that something? So, so that's, that's kind of where we are. It's, in, in man-made religion, it's turned around the other way. So good works actually become the root of faith, or so they say. So hopefully that's a help. Any other comments outside of those three questions? All right, hopefully this is helpful today. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll pick up with this next week, and we'll uh, continue in paragraph two. So let's go ahead and we'll pray together, and then we'll go into our time of fellowship. Father, we do thank you this morning uh, for your word. And Lord, thank you for the clarity of the scriptures. And Lord, if we have been struggling at all in this area of good works, I pray, Lord, that through your word today, especially through this passage in Micah, I hope that we have been helped. I hope we've been edified. And Lord, I, I pray that we've just been able to see through the spirit the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, we have spent many, many years uh, trying to invent and create ways to worship you. And Lord, I'm afraid that we haven't even dealt with the first fruits of what we're supposed to do, and we've already moved on to things that we think we ought to do. Uh, Lord, I pray that through this study, you would just help us to see, uh, most important what the scripture said, but also uh, what the confession writers were thinking of when they put this document together. Uh, Lord, we know that the confession is not an inspired document. It is not, uh, it does not uh, supersede the scriptures and anywhere that there is disagreement between the scriptures and the confession we always side with the scriptures we're thankful for the inspired infallible and errant word of god and uh, lord we are grateful that it is sufficient for all matters thank you for christ thank you for what he has done for uh, his people by dying for our sins in our place and uh, may we rejoice and rest in that fact today we love you and we thank you and it's in christ's name i pray amen all right, thank you so much. We'll start right at 11.15 this morning.